Amen. Thank you for your good singing this morning and your participation in the worship service. Here at Brainerd, we seek to preach sermons each week that accurately and thoughtfully reflect and expose the meaning of a particular passage of Scripture. We want the message of our sermons to be the message of the passage that we're preaching from. And uh, so right now, most Sundays, we're preaching through the Gospel of Luke. And I would ask you to take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 9. Uh, If you're new to the Bible, if you need a Bible, there are Bibles on the table in the lobby. And if you're new to the Bible, uh, you'll notice that uh, the the Gospel of Luke is in about the last third or fourth of your Bible. So kind of go toward the last fourth. And right around there is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are four uh, early accounts of the life of Jesus, breathed out by the Holy Spirit for our edification and for our faith. And these four accounts, uh, gospel accounts, uh, tell us all we need about, about Jesus Christ, about salvation. And so, uh, again, if you're new to even flipping through a Bible, the large numbers that you'll see on the pages are chapters, the small numbers are verses, and I'm going to be reading from chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. I'll be reading aloud. You're welcome to follow along silently as I read, beginning in Luke 9, 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed And on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. If you were a soldier captured by your enemy... What would you try to do? Just sit it out and wait for someone to come and rescue you, or would you try and escape? That wasn't a hypothetical question for hundreds of British pilots during World War I who were either shot down or in various ways captured by the Germans and were taken to various prison camps where some of them were held for months or years, but at various stages throughout their being in those prison camps, uh, hundreds of them tried to escape and decided, I'm not just going to sit around here. And the reason why, it wasn't they just wanted to run home to their mothers. They wanted to go back and start fighting again. And so uh, whenever someone, whenever one of these pilots would be captured, recaptured, I should say, like they are arrested or you know, captured, taken to one of these prison camps, and then they escape somehow. After that second, after that escape, when they're captured again, they're taken to this one especially terrible prison camp where the conditions had, you know, no creature comforts. 
the commander in charge of the prison camp was an absolute jerk and uh, made life miserable and humiliating for these men. But you put 500 guys in one prison camp, all of whom have escaped from other prison camps, and what do you think they're going to try and do? They're probably going to try and escape again and put their masterminds, criminal masterminds, uh, to good use. There's my first Emperor's New Groove quote in there, uh, criminal masterminds. But, uh, and so what these guys started to do was plot out a plan. And three guys in particular kind of oversaw this process of how are we going to get out of this, this uh, terrible prison camp where there was obviously the one wall and then a gap and then another wall. And they were going to have to get beyond both of those walls, all while there are German shepherds kind of patrolling around the outside of the fence and, and soldiers patrolling around the outside of the fence. How are we going to do this? And so three of these guys in particular developed a plan by which they would dig a tunnel nine feet deep. And they knew that based on how far away the prison outer walls were, this tunnel would have to be about 60 to 80 yards long. So imagine a football field and three-fourths of of a football field long and obviously high enough and wide enough at nine feet deep for adult men to climb through. If you wanted to dig a tunnel that long, what kind of tools would you like to have at your disposal? Probably a wheelbarrow and a shovel and a pickaxe. They had none of those. They had the spoons that they ate their breakfast with. And they used their spoons to dig a tunnel. In order to even go through the effort that this massive project would require, these escape artists, as author Neil Bascom calls them, needed determination, courage, and sacrifice. And while some may think that the Christian life is the life of ease and prosperity... Following Jesus also requires courage and determination and resilience and sacrifice. That's because our hearts are not inclined to do what is difficult. I mean, it's hard enough for us to get out of bed most mornings. It's hard for us to confront a fellow Christian about sin. It's hard for us to get in good habits of going to church and reading our Bible and praying kind of the basic formula of feeding ourselves spiritually, it's hard to do those things because of our hearts not wanting to do hard things. But this passage that I've just read for us this morning in Luke 9 makes it clear that following Jesus requires clarity and conviction. Specifically, you need clarity and conviction. You need clarity about who He is, what He came to do, and the cost of following Him. And that's the the simple outline that this passage very naturally falls into. Who is Jesus? What did He come to do? And what is the cost of following Him? And we as Christians need clarity and conviction about those three uh, aspects of following Jesus. And so Jesus lays out in this passage what you need to know if you're going to call yourself a Christian, if you're going to call yourself a disciple, someone who follows Jesus. He does this in three ways. In verses 18 through 20, he clarifies who he is. He clarifies his identity. And the reason he needs to do this is because the crowds were confused. You know, he starts off with this question. uh, And it's always important. When Luke says that Jesus was praying, it's always important. So, I mean, he talks about prayer more than any of the other Gospels, uh, Gospel writers do. Possibly more than the rest of them combined, actually. 
And he's always tying Jesus praying to very important events. And the important event here in this passage is Peter confessing that Jesus is the Messiah, is the Christ, is the Savior of the world. But while Peter clearly and the other disciples had some clarity about that, the crowds did not. They're thinking he's John the Baptist. Why in the world would they think Jesus is John the Baptist? Well, obviously these are people who hadn't met John the Baptist because we know by this time John has been beheaded and he's dead. But we also know that John and Jesus were ministering at the same time and they were even together at the point where John baptized Jesus. So these had to have been people who hadn't met John. They just heard about these miracles and thought, well, maybe that's John the Baptist. We've heard about him doing some kind of crazy things, eating locusts and honey and things. And so maybe he's who this person is. Well, then you also have passages like in Malachi 3 and 4 that gave expectation that Elijah would come or a person like Elijah would come. And so people are kind of trying to figure out if Jesus is Elijah in, in some way in fulfilling this, his ministry. And then others say he's one of the prophets, like Jeremiah, who we read from the book of Lamentations today, or like Isaiah, or someone else who had been perhaps martyred for their faith, for their ministry, hated because of the the clear message of, of God's righteousness and judgment that they were proclaiming. So maybe Jesus is one of these guys. But this question that Jesus asked the disciples who do the crowds say? And then after they give the answers of what the crowds are saying, he asks them, but who do you say? This is actually a really important question. Like the most important question you could answer. And that's why we have a stack of books on the resource table called Who is Jesus? And if you need one of those books because you have some lack of clarity about that question, we'd love for you just to take one. That's why we are giving out gospel tracts that say Who is Jesus? It's that little, little red book condensed into a little red gospel booklet. Because this is the question that your life and your eternal life hinges on. How do you answer who, who Jesus is? You've got to get this clear. And that's why it's encouraging when we see that the disciples were drawing the right conclusions of who Jesus is. When Jesus asked them that in verse 20, Peter answered on behalf of the group, which he excuse me, often does, sometimes to his benefit, sometimes to his detriment. But here in this case, he gives the right answer. You are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah. You are the one that the whole Old Testament is talking about. And how did the disciples come to this conclusion? We can assume that James and John and the other disciples were concluding the same uh, truth about Jesus, that he is the Messiah. But how did they draw that connection? Because of what he said and because of what he did. And I think very importantly, thirdly, because of their understanding of the Old Testament. So when they start to see the dead being raised, the blind being uh, given sight, the lepers running are, are being healed and, and the lame running, I should say, and the, the mute speaking, and you could go on and on. When they start to see those and they read passages like Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61 and they start to connect the dots, they say, oh, clearly this person is the Messiah. And so here they, they come to the right conclusion about who Jesus is. But Jesus needed these disciples. If they're going to follow him, he needed them to be convinced of who he was. And so in verses 18 through 20, Jesus clarifies his identity. In verses 21 through 22, Jesus foretells his suffering. 
And this part would have knocked the socks, if they wore them, off the disciples. Most likely not. So their sandal straps would have exploded, okay? Why? Because this is the first time in the book of Luke that Jesus says anything about His suffering. This is a newsflash to these disciples. So He strictly charged and commanded them to tell that He is the Messiah to no one. That sounds kind of counterintuitive, don't you think? Like you would think now would be the time to start proclaiming the gospel. But when you understand the moment that Jesus was living in with these disciples, you would say, oh yeah, it probably was wise. People were looking for a Messiah character to come who would crush their enemies and exalt the Jewish nation of Israel and provide this great, victorious, you know, majestic Uh, conquering victory. Well, Jesus didn't come to reign in glory yet. He came to suffer first. And this was shocking to the disciples, which is why he needed to give them a warning in verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them. Like, don't tell anyone what I've just told you and what you just, basically what you just told me. In verse 22, the disciples needed their expectations adjusted. Again, they had a certain picture in their minds of what it was going to look like when the Messiah came. And now they're saying, this is clearly Him. Like, we've connected all the dots. It matches the description of what the Messiah is going to do and what the Messiah is going to be. And Jesus says, no, it actually probably doesn't. Let me kind of shatter your expectations here by telling you that the Son of Man, which is a key term for Christ, going back to Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, and used dozens of times throughout the the Gospel accounts, especially in Luke, The Son of Man must suffer many things, which that term encompasses pretty much everything from Jesus being in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to the Father, basically, if if it's possible, you know, withhold this cup from me. From that moment on until he was crucified, uh, that's kind of what this term suffering many things is, is describing. Then he's rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. Again, jump into your Bible sometime later on today. And go to Luke 22 and Luke 23, and you see Jesus being taken before the Sanhedrin, which is uh, the Jewish group of elders, chief priests, and scribes. And he uses that exact, Luke uses that exact same phrase later on in Luke. And then he has to be killed. And by this time, the disciples are like, what are you talking about? Stop. You're out of your mind. They had no idea. But Jesus was clear on who he was and on what he had come to do. He had come to seek and to save that which was lost. And he did that by laying down his life as the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But then he also, on the third day, would be raised, which also sounds crazy to these disciples. But Jesus foretells his suffering. And this phrase where he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. The word must you know, he used that back in chapter 2 when he said, don't you know that I, must, that I must be in my father's house at the age of 12? And he uses that same phrase later on in, in Luke 24. I'll just read a couple places where this shows up and you can you know, Google search this later to see all the others. But uh, Luke 24, verse 6, uh, verse, verse 7, 
The angel said, uh, remember how Jesus told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered. There you go. Must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise. What's that angel referring to? Our passage right here. Luke 9, verse 22. And just a few verses later, in uh, verse 26 of chapter 24, Jesus himself said, was it not necessary... Must. Necessary. Same idea. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into His glory? So this this theme continues throughout the rest of the book of Luke. So Jesus, if you're going to follow Him, you need to be clear on who He is and on what His mission is. And then third, uh, in verses 23 through 27, Jesus identifies the cost of discipleship. You need to be clear on what the cost is of following Him. Jesus is giving you fair warning here. Don't assume that being a Christian is the road to the good life, at least as the world defines what the good life looks like. Some elements of your life may improve. You may have an inner sense of peace in the midst of the chaos that you experience in a world like the one we're in. But especially early on in your Christian life, it may be very difficult. You may lose friendships. You may lose Family members, and in fact, uh, one of our missionaries, I prayed for Tim Cassie, he wrote in his most recent monthly update, pray for those who are taking up their cross and following Jesus. I just got word of a newborn brother in North Africa named Azdin. When his family discovered he was a Christian, they tore his Bible to shreds and kicked him out of the house. Azdin has been shaken, but is faithful. The church has been his family through this trial, and he had to move to another city to find work. Cross-bearing is costly. So don't expect that if you're going to follow Jesus, this is the road to a flowery life of ease. No, it's the opposite, especially in many parts of the world. Not as much, you know, physically speaking in our lives, but there are difficulties, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, to following Jesus. Following Jesus, this, this little section here, verses 23 through 27, following Jesus requires short-term sacrifice. Short-term sacrifice. And when Jesus says that if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to take up your cross, that would have made complete sense to his disciples. Not because Jesus had died on a cross. They had no idea that when he said that he was going to suffer, that, that meant he was going to be crucified. But they had seen lots of other people be, be crucified. This was a horrific, humiliating way to execute someone, but they regularly saw people walking up a hill, carrying their own cross, and never coming back again. When somebody carried a cross, it was a one-way ticket. He never came back. And so these disciples had seen many a Roman criminal carrying his cross And they had to start connecting the dots of Jesus saying, if you're going to follow me, it's going to be a hard road. And he was giving them this fair warning. Following Jesus involves short-term sacrifice. So what is the cost of following Jesus? Well, in some cases, as with this brother Azdin, our own brother in North Africa, is persecution. It's having to go find a new place to live having to go find a new place to work, having to find new friends in a new city. It may mean a loss of reputation or respect or social standing. So maybe you keep your mouth shut when you're with a certain group so that you won't be docked. You know, maybe if someone finds out that, that you are a Christian, you're not going to get a certain position in a, in a 
club that you want to be a part of. It may affect your employment. It may affect your relationships. It may affect your habits. Years ago, I interviewed a a Christian man. He's a, a doctor in Anniston, Alabama, where we lived before we moved back here. And he had gotten saved while he was in medical school in Philadelphia. And um, actually, I think he was done with medical school by that time. Uh, So he was probably doing his residency in Philadelphia. And as part of his job, he regularly performed abortions, among obviously other procedures. And as he was sitting there listening one day to a brother share the gospel with him, he was immediately convicted of his sin. And he started thinking through, if I'm going to become a Christian, it's going to affect what I can do at work, what I can do at home, what I can do out on the streets at night, it's just going to affect every part of my life. And I asked him, so what are some of the examples of, of how it affected your, your habits, your, 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 just your everyday living? He said, what part did it not affect? My whole life was shaken upside down when I got saved. And he was you know, 25 or so years old at that point and you know, well-established in, in adult habits at that point and realized, if I'm going to be a Christian, a lot of this has to stop right now. And so following Jesus, the cost of following Jesus is you can't just live life however you want to live, as comfortable as you might think the Christian life can be. As uh, Dane Orland, again, who I prayed for earlier, coincidentally, uh, wrote in one of his books about Jonathan Edwards, he said that living the Christian life often feels like you're running up the down escalator, which is packed with people like, a, you know, at the mall on Good Friday, and everybody's coming down the down escalator, and you're trying to go against the stream, and you're running up against it, and it's hard, and it's exhausting, and you feel like you're never going to succeed, but that's the Christian life. You're running up the down escalator. But when Jesus says here that someone can lose his life for his sake and save it, it reminds us of the missionary Jim Elliott who said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Are you willing to lose social standing, employment, education opportunities, family relationships, friendships for the the short-term sacrifice of following Jesus? But there's not just short-term sacrifice, there's also long-term gain. We see that here in verses 23 through 27 as well. Verse 27 is a somewhat strange passage. And just backing up for a moment, verse 26 is Jesus proclaiming he's going to come back, which again is news to these disciples, kind of confusing. Come back from where again? Like what what are we talking about here? And he says, "When, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Well, what does he mean by that glory? Well, verse 27, he reveals his glory to three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. We'll look at this next Sunday in beginning of verse 28. But what we need to remember is that Jesus was born in a shed or in a cave. And no one really ever saw his glory. They saw his humanity. They saw him living life like you and me. And now he's going to reveal just for a moment a glimpse of his glory to these disciples. And so verse 27 is referring, when he says that there are some standing here, he's referring to the guys in verse 28, Peter, James, and John. Not everybody standing here. Three in particular are standing here who will not 
die. That's what it means to taste death. Have you ever had a taste of death? It tastes like dying. But that's what he means here. You're gonna, these guys are not going to die until they see the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? That's referring to verse 28 through the end of that passage about the transfiguration. And so in that transfiguration, they saw a foreshadowing of the future day when Jesus would come in His glory and the glory of the Father and the glory of the holy angels to come in glory to judge His enemies and bring His children home and establish His kingdom forever. But what this means for us is that we have to view this life that we're living right now as being subordinate to the next life. We have to live with a sense of delayed gratification that we lose now to win later. Whereas the world says, I'm going to win now to lose later. They don't want to lose later. They just want to win now. And we say, I'm okay losing now because the first will be last and the last will be first. This redemptive reversal throughout the, the book of Luke. But this passage is clear that someone is not a Christian just because they loosely like Jesus. And this part of this sermon is super important. Not that everything else I've just said was not, but this would be the time to tune it up a bit uh, if, if, this, if you need to, to, to hear what I'm going to say here. We are super unclear as American Christians of what it means to be a Christian. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Someone is not a Christian just because they see Jesus as an example or an inspiration, like a model to follow. Last week, I was walking through the library to get that book about these guys digging the tunnel I was telling you about. We'll come back to that. Um, and I, on the way into the library, I saw another book that said something like, the Jesus I know, or something along these lines. And I thought, well, that looks like a sermon illustration. So I just grabbed it and checked it out and then flipped through it and then wanted to vomit. So I returned it after reading through it. But what, one of the things that, that just really grieved me was in the first chapter, which is as far as I got because it was so bad, was you know, this lady who was writing this book, uh, interviewing some guy on a movie set or something. And she was trying to convince him to become a Christian and he wasn't buying it. And so she said something like, but surely you believe that Jesus lived the way that we should live. And he goes, 100%. And she said, so I put my arms around him and hugged him and said, welcome to the kingdom of God. And I just thought, oh my goodness. Just because you think somebody, Jesus, is an example of how to live, doesn't mean you're a Christian. Doesn't mean you're part of the kingdom of God. You're not a Christian just because you pray. You're not a Christian just because you grow up in the church. You're not a Christian just because you can quote a Bible verse like, judge not that you be not judged. It's a Bible verse. That doesn't mean you're a Christian just because you can say that. You're not a Christian just because you give to the church or give to good charities, parachurch organizations. Those are good things to do, but they don't save you. And when you start putting your hope in them, they can actually damn you. We need a biblical, robust understanding of what it means to be converted, of the doctrine of conversion. And so, again, some of us have been in the church, have called ourselves Christians for so long that we can't even imagine, you know, not being a Christian, not considering ourselves a Christian. 
But it's really important for us to be clear because we may unwittingly be deceiving ourselves uh, by thinking we're Christians without actually knowing what it means to be a Christian. And so let me just put it really simply. A Christian is someone who is convinced that Jesus is the only Savior of the world and puts all his trust or her trust in him alone and demonstrates that trust, that faith, by the way you live, by repentance, all right? So faith and repentance, the two elements of conversion, uh, humanly speaking, and these are daily responses to Christ. And so again, it's one thing to pray a prayer as a child, as many of us have done, and then call it a day. I'm a Christian, I'm good to go, once saved, always saved, don't have to worry about that anymore. And that's super dangerous thinking, Christians, friends. And so a Christian believes a certain way, acts a certain way, prioritizes certain things, loves a certain way, follows Jesus a certain way, but ultimately what it means to be a Christian is you are convinced that he is the only Savior. You put all your hope in him alone and you show that by the way that you live. What all this means is that Jesus did not come to give you a comfortable life. We wish sometimes that he did. But he says we need to take up our cross and deny ourselves and follow him. One of the saddest people in the New Testament is named Demas. He's mentioned in Colossians chapter 4 in a very positive way. That Demas is my friend. He's laboring alongside of me. And then the next time he's mentioned is in 2 Timothy 4. And it says, but Demas has forsaken me. Being in love with this present world. You know what that means? He decided it was better to lose later and win now. He had given up the idea of delayed gratification, that it's better to lose now in order to win later. He gave up on following Jesus because he felt the the benefits of this present life are better than the hope of eternal life. He decided to stop denying himself to stop taking up his cross and to stop following Jesus. And so those of us as Christians and those of us who perhaps are considering Christianity, and if that's the case, we are so glad you are here. This is the place to go. Go to a healthy gospel-preaching church if you want to consider Christianity. So if you're considering Christianity and trying to piece all this together, we would love to talk to you after the service about all of this. If you would already consider yourself a Christian, You say, I have repented and I have believed. We still need clarity about who Jesus is, what he came to do, and the cost of following him. While being aware that it looks different to follow Jesus now than it did in 1750 or 1863 or 1945, and it looks different to follow Jesus here than it does to follow him in Uganda or in Southeast Asia, there are a lot of similarities. The really important things are exactly the same, but, but if you do want to follow Jesus here and now, what does that look like? It means that you join a healthy church. You join a church that makes the gospel crystal clear. And you serve that church because you've joined it. So now you're, now you're serving it. You're using the spiritual gifts that God has given you by His Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion, and you Go to a church where you can serve, not just where you can be served. You don't just go around trying to check all the boxes of, oh, I want them to have this feature and that feature, and I want to make sure that they have like 
orange ginger scones to go with the coffee every Sunday, and we're going to check that box, and they have the nicest bathrooms, we're going to check that box, and they have people around my age, we're going to check that box. Go to a church where you can serve, not just where you can be served. Get someone to disciple you. Get someone to walk the Christian life with you, in other words. If you want to follow Jesus, it's not an individual sport. It is a team sport in every sense of the word. So get someone to disciple you and to help you follow Jesus. And then find someone else to disciple, someone you can help follow Jesus, which then will have its own discipling influence on your own heart as well. These are ways to follow Jesus today. These are what it looks like to have clarity about who we are following. And just to be clear, as I know I've used the word clear and clarity a lot, but just to be clear, you are following someone. So follow Jesus rather than following the wrong side. One night in 1918, the pilots knew they were ready. They knew the night had come. They had created their tunnel nine feet deep, 80 yards long. They knew exactly where it was going to come out into a little cornfield where they thought they'd have a little bit of cover. Wonderfully, providentially, it was pouring rain in a thunderstorm, so there was lots of noise, which made it difficult for the dogs and the guards to hear these men. And so a stream of men started going through this long tunnel. They had used They needed wood to hold the tunnel up, the tunnel walls up, so it wouldn't collapse on them as soon as they got in it while they were digging it. And so they had used the wood from their beds. That was the only wood they had. So they, you know, if they all slept on bunk beds, they had cut out the wood that went underneath their mattresses, which meant then they had to sleep on the floor because if they got on their mattresses, they'd just fall down on top of each other. But that was the only wood they had, so they had used this wood to hold the walls up after they had used breakfast spoons to claw their way through rock and clay for up to 80 yards and 29 of these pilots escaped before the tunnel started collapsing on the guys who were still in the tunnel. So they started pulling guys out backwards by their feet to get them out before they suffocated in this already claustrophobic and entirely black tunnel filled with rats. An amazing story if you want to read the, the escape artist by Neil Bascom. 29 of those guys escaped. Only 10 of them made it to freedom. And once they got out of the jail, they had, I think, 35 miles to get to Allied country uh, in, I think, Holland. So they had quite a ways to go, all while pretending to be German soldiers or whoever else they needed to pretend to be in order to actually get to freedom. But all that to say, those guys knew exactly what they were trying to do. They knew exactly why they were trying to do it, and they had already counted the cost and realized that it was totally worth it. And my question for you is, do you have clarity about who Jesus is, and have you counted the cost, and are you willing to say it is worth it, because it is better to lose now to win later? Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we praise you that Jesus has called us that you have taken the initiative in sovereign grace to call us as your children and your disciples. And we pray that this passage would give us a sense of the sobriety of calling ourselves Christians. Pray for those who are considering Christianity and and whether uh, they want to follow Jesus with their lives, whether they're willing to pay that cost, we pray that you would 
by your Spirit. Give them new life and compel them to follow you. We thank you for this passage and its truth, and we pray for everyone here that we would faithfully follow you to the very end. In Christ's name, amen.